Do you want to become a better hockey player this summer with Paul Vincent Hockey? Since 1972, Paul Vincent, currently the head skills instructor of the Florida Panthers, has been developing NHL and college hockey players. Paul Vincent stands by his saying, there is always room for player development. Players such as Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taves, Matt Grizzlick, Patrick Sharp, Adam Oates, and many more have trained with Coach Vincent and his staff and have outstanding results. Join Paul Vincent this summer at one of his four Massachusetts locations, Canton, Saugus, Middleton, and Falmouth on Cape Cod. Registration is now open for 2022 camps. To reserve your spot today, go to pvhockey.com or call 978-807-4070. That's pvhockey.com or call 978-807-4070. Paul Vincent is ready to get back to work this summer. Are you? Welcome to New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise Podcast, the podcast for serious hockey players and their supporters to help further their development and navigate their way throughout their hockey careers. And now, here is your host, New England Hockey Journal's Kirk Ludicky. This is the New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise Podcast. I am your host, Kirk Ludicky, joined in studio with uh, Matt Cater, my guest host. Great to have you, Matt. No, I really appreciate you having me, and I'm just happy to be here. We have a very special guest today joining us via Zoom, Olympics, U.S. Olympic head coach David Quinn, Cranston, Rhode Island native. Coach Quinn, uh, it is great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. So uh, the Olympics, you had uh, you had quite the experience in China, uh, quite a team. Uh, just uh, how did it go overall? How was the experience for you taking your uh, your your athletes over there and, and, and competing? And uh, your thoughts on the experience overall? Yeah, it was an incredible experience. Uh, obviously, uh, USA Hockey had to change gears in the middle of December when uh, the NHL players decided they weren't going to go and. Um, you know, it was a process I think we learned a lot from, from 2018. Uh, felt really good about the team we chose. Loved the, the start we had, obviously being number one seed after all the preliminary games were over. Felt really good going into the Slovakia game. And obviously certainly not the ending we wanted, losing in a shootout to Slovakia. But uh, just an incredible experience. I've been very fortunate in my coaching career, but never more fortunate than uh, to be head coach for the U.S. Olympic team. Quinny, how was the uh, blend of this team? I, I know in 2018, it seemed like the, it was an older group, but the best players and the most energetic players were the college players. How did you guys, what type of blend did you guys uh, purposely pick for this team? Well, obviously, as you alluded to the, you know, looking back in 18, I think we did learn a little bit through the selection process, but every year is different. You know, it's every four years you know, they asked me what type of team we wanted. I said, I wanted the best team possible with the pool that we had. And I didn't care where they came from, whether it be college, European pros, American leaguers, you know, the way the whole thing unfolded, it just happened to be, we felt our best team was going to be built basically around the college players. You know, we were very fortunate to have all the, you know, a lot of talented players playing college hockey, you know, looking at what we had to choose from, we didn't think we we're going to be a big heavy team. We thought speed, and skill were going to be the strength of our team. So we kind of maybe leaned in that direction a little bit. And like I said, you know, usually when you go through international competition and going through choosing a team, uh, you look back and you think, oh, maybe we should have taken this guy instead of that guy. We never felt that way, even throughout the tournament. We really felt good about the team we chose. 
felt good about our performance and the way we went about it. And like I said, just uh, unfortunate the way it ended. I don't think people realize that the uh, format has changed now where it's uh, everything kind of gets to that quarterfinal game and everything builds to that quarterfinal game. And it was obviously a tough loss for you guys, but uh, I felt like your team was just coming together. Um, How was it after the game with the boys? It must have been tough. It was very disappointing. It was crushing. And I think people would be very surprised how quickly we became a team. Uh, in such a short period of time. There were a lot of tears. There was true emotion and connection throughout the the roster, not only within the locker room, but between the staff and the players. You know, it was an incredible experience. And uh, there's a bond between uh, everybody that took part in the Olympics, whether it be staff members, coaches, players, that you have forever. And, uh, you know, it was a very, very difficult loss because our expectations were so high we felt so so good about the direction we were going. Um, you know, we lose O'Neal at the end of the first period. Was you know one of our top players. We didn't have Sanderson. Um, you know, just uh, it was a tough it was a tough way to lose a hockey game. And uh, you know, you're up with a minute to go, and you know they you know they get a they get a CNI single goal, and uh, you know we played really well in the overtime. We hit a couple posts and. Really loved though. I thought we were going to win it in overtime, and obviously losing in the shootout was a very difficult pill to swallow. Right, and you had you had other challenges as well. I mean, we're we're still dealing with this global pandemic. Um, you just you know the whole COVID and, and and dealing with the the various protocols. It had to be just had to really change the way you planned and prepared because of you know you you didn't know whether you were going to have players available. Is this is this uh, correct? It just it was a distraction that really added to the burden of the, of the coaching you guys had to do. Yeah. But I think we, you know, we understood the situation we were getting into and I thought we all did a great job of just kind of having tunnel vision and, you know, addressing the task at hand and, you know, not letting anything distract us. Every team had their own challenges. We talked about that from day one is the team that handles distractions and adversity. Uh, the best is going to have the best chance to win. You know, we had some players that came down with COVID early when we got together in LA and, you know, the teams in the tournament did too. So, you know, it just, you just had to manage it. And I thought we did a very good job of that. Those weren't the, you know, we obviously, like I said, we were the number one seed after the preliminary round. We didn't let it get in our way. And, uh, you know, that, that, again, I think that's kind of what made the loss hurt so much is because we felt like we were doing all the right things to put ourselves in a position to have success. Uh, no, there's no doubt. Uh, why don't we talk about some of the local kids, the three young ones in particular, uh, Maddie Beneers uh, from Hingham, who I think is going to play well over a thousand games in the NHL, Sean Farrell from Harvard, and then Mark McLaughlin from BC. Uh, could you touch on each one of them and their contributions? Yeah. You know, Maddie Beneers, um, you know, I've known Maddie since I recruited him to go to BU and, you know, everything you want in a player. I mean, there's no secret why he was picked second overall in the NHL draft. He had a heck of an Olympics. Um, you know, he's a guy you want to build your franchise around, not only what you see on the ice, but what you see off the ice. Uh, he's got a dynamic personality. Um, he's got such swagger. You know, he, the great players have great swagger. And he's it's not arrogance, it's swagger. And uh, he's got it in spades. And Seattle certainly uh, has an incredible building block, and I think a future captain in Matty Berners. Uh, Sean Farrell had a great tournament. He's a guy that's kind of a quiet assassin. He plays at a great pace, competitive, skilled, 
Um, you know, I've another guy that I have was familiar with from my BU days, and uh, he's got a great future ahead of him. And, and McLaughlin was uh, is a really good player. He's big, he's strong, he's got some skill to complement that. It's been a lot of fun watching him play for the Bruins. Uh, and again, we went deep, and it was a hard, you know, couple of guys we had to sit out because we just we felt like we had 14 really good forwards. Yeah. And uh, you know, one of the things that I think is a testament to our team. The conversations that I would have with the guys that weren't playing, obviously they were disappointed they weren't playing, but you never saw it in their faces. You never saw it in the way they carried themselves. It really epitomized uh, the team mentality we had, had over there. But all three of those players uh, are going to have great, great pro careers, and they really were impactful players for us in the Olympics. I saw all three of them as uh, you know my time in the USHL, and they all you know. Terrific, but one guy that really put a dagger in my heart uh, is when I was with Omaha was a goaltender Strauss man, and he was the MVP that year for the Fargo Force and led him to the to the Clark Cup championship. And you know it's tough being in, in net for that loss, but I thought he played he played pretty well. And 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 you had two great goaltenders in Camasso and, and Man. How how was he for you? He was outstanding, and uh, you know he's got a future too in the NHL. And uh, you know when we got back from the Olympics. Uh, we all had call, a lot of calls about him. I think he's going to get a chance uh, to play in the National Hockey League. Um, you know, it was really disappointing. You know, one of the things that you learn, and you know, I you know, I was fortunate because I you know coached a lot of international hockey. But in games of that magnitude, you can't make a big mistake. You know how how bad are your mistakes in games like that? And their first goal was just one just one colossal breakdown by us, the only one we had in the game, and ends up in the back of the net. And, uh, you know, like I said, the tying goal that they get at the end of the third period, you know, hits a stick in the high slot, hits their skate at the net front, and the guy taps it in. So uh, goaltending was a strength of ours. Uh, we felt very good about the, you know, our two, two goalies. They played very well. We didn't give up a lot of scoring chances throughout the tournament, but anytime we did, those guys were certainly there to answer the call. Great. You know, looking back at your uh... – I've been fortunate to know you over 30 years now, uh, but you came up from Cranston, Rhode Island, the hometown of Hall of Fame Bob, Bob Lober, one of our <laughs> mutual friends. That's another yeah. story. Uh, but I, you know, you played obviously at a high level. Uh, you weren't able to continue at a high level, and you got right into coaching. Uh, what led you to Northeastern after your playing career? Well, Ben Smith was the head coach at Northeastern at the time, and uh, he was looking for an assistant coach. And Ben recruited me to go to BU uh, after I was diagnosed with hemophilia. Ben, you know, became someone who I leaned on heavily through some difficult times, as was Jack Parker. And when I, when I was trying to find out what my next move was in life at the tender age of 22 and 23, I thought to myself, you know, I'd like to be able to do for somebody what Ben Smith and Jack Parker and Larry Piatelli did for me. And that kind of steered me towards coaching. Uh, I was incredibly fortunate to, to, you know, step into a situation at Northeastern. And my first coaching job was an assistant coach at a Division One school like Northeastern. And it just uh, became a passion of mine. And I will be forever indebted to Ben, uh, not only for what he did for me professionally, but certainly what he's done for me personally. And, you know, certainly one of my closest friends. I remember seeing you, I, I was scouting back then, but you were hustling around the ranks then. And then all of a sudden you're like a new England guy. And I remember seeing you out of a USHL game. All of a sudden you're working for Omaha. How did you end up in at Nebraska <laughs> Omaha from here? 
Well, Ben, actually, my third year in Northeastern, Ben was offered the Olympic uh, job with the women's team. And he was leaving. Uh, Bruce Crowder came in to be the head coach at Northeastern. Ben wanted me to go with the women's Olympic program. You know, I was a little bit in, in, a, in flux, not knowing what my next move was. And I was actually coaching at the U.S. Uh, Festival up in Lake Placid. And I had heard that Nebraska Omaha was starting a program. I remember being out you know, scouting a USHL game in Omaha and heard that they were going to start a division one program out there, but I didn't think much of it. And I was actually uh, coaching a, a team in the U S 15 festival. And after the game, uh, Mike Kemp came up and uh, said that he had just gotten the head coaching job in Nebraska, Omaha the night before. And he wanted to talk to me about being his assistant coach and how that happened. Mike Kemp, who was very close with Dave Peterson, who was a 1988 Olympic coach and the world, my world junior coach in 1986 told my told went up to Dave Peterson and said, Hey, I just got the Nebraska Omaha job. Now I need to find an assistant coach. And Dave Peterson looked down at the bench and said, there's your assistant coach right there. He pointed at me, at me. <laughs> and I remember sitting down with Mike up in Lake Placid and, you know, we hit it off and flew out to Omaha and thought to myself, you know, what an incredible opportunity to be able to build a program from the ground up. I thought it was going to be a unique experience. I thought I was going to learn an awful lot, meet a lot of people, establish a lot of recruiting footprints throughout Canada and, you know, just enhance my recruiting contact base. And uh, it was the best move I ever made. And, you hey, know, were you, were you dialed, were you dialed in back then on being a head coach? Like back then, you know, were you just kind of just doing it? Cause six years in Omaha, you're grinding. Yeah, I give you credit. It's grind. It's grinding, but I loved every minute of it. It was, you know, people ask me all the time to give advice. You know, what would you say to someone? And this is a God's honest truth, Matt. I, you know, any job I took, I never had an agenda. You know, when I went to Omaha, all I wanted to do was go and be the best assistant coach I could be, be a good person, you know, do the best job for the person I was working for and let the chips fall where they may. And that's kind of how it happened. I, I, you know, I, and then after being in there, in the Omaha for six years and us having some quick success, you know, I got an incredible opportunity to coach a national program. So, you know, I think if you're going to be a coach, you better be willing to move. And uh, I was very fortunate to get that opportunity. It really changed my life. Yeah. So uh, talk to us about how you ended up at the national team and, and what did it look back look like back then? Because they were playing in the North American League versus the USHL. Right. So, again, after my time in Nebraska, Omaha, uh, I think Mike Eves became the head coach at Wisconsin and they were looking for a coach. And I had done a lot of work with USA hockey, whether it be with the festivals or through Ben Smith with the women's program, played on a world junior team. Um, so I had a lot of, you know, a lot of connections, a lot of experience coaching USA hockey. And they, you know, asked me if I'd be interested in the job. And I went out to Ann Arbor and was very fortunate to get that job with the under 17 team. Back then you were the under 17 coach, and they had an under 18 coach. You weren't staying with your age group. And so I was the under 17 coach at the time. And my first group of players was the 86 age group. Uh, Mo Mantha was the head coach for the under 18 team. And, you know, one of the great things about the national program is as great it is for developing players. I think it's a great training ground for coaches as well. And you look at the coaches who have been through there and where they've gone on and, you know, what it's done for USA coaches. Uh, to me is immeasurable. And it certainly allowed me to be a head coach, meet a lot of people, establish my coaching roots, and, uh, you know, really launch my head coaching career. I think it's also, I remember talking to you back in that time, you didn't want to get typecast as an assistant either. 
Right. I think you knew you needed that, that head coaching experience. Uh, you did the right. two years there. How did you end up back at BU, which obviously is home for you? Right. Well, Jack, you know, Brian DeRosha, they had just started the women's program and Brian DeRosha was sliding over to be the head coach for the women's program. And it was funny. I had just interviewed for the Vermont job and, you know, mm -hmm. thought I had that job. Snetty got it, you know, did a great job at Vermont when he got it. But, you know, I had my first head coaching job interview uh, the year before uh, BD had uh, taken over the women's program. So I was feeling close to becoming a head coach at the collegiate level. And uh, I remember Jack calling me and uh, came out to Ann Arbor and we talked an awful lot. And, you know, he wanted me to come back to be the associate head coach there. And you know, I was a head coach in Ann Arbor. And it wasn't a slam dunk decision because I felt that if I had taken the BU job, um, you know, a lot of people were going to jump to conclusions that, you know, right or wrong, that I was going to be the next head coach at BU and any head coaching job that was going to open up between the time I took the job and Jack retiring, I wasn't going to get a shot at, you know, and I talked to Jack about that. And, but at the end of the day, I thought it was the right move for me to go back to BU. Um, you know, went back to BU. They had just got done uh, finishing touches on Aganis Arena and uh, spent five years there and culminating with a national championship in 09. You had some interesting uh, characters uh, on those teams. Uh, what was uh, what was it like working with a guy like Benino or Kevin Shattenkirk and those guys? Yeah, that was uh, that was a heck of a class. Uh, Benino, Wilson, Shattenkirk, Colby Cohen, Joe Pereira. I mean, we had uh, that was a class that really we had some really good upperclassmen that year. And everyone looks at that sophomore class when we won it in 09. That was a sophomore class. But, you know, you look at the older players like Gilroy and Johnny McCarthy and Jason Lawrence and Chris Higgins and Brandon Yip. And, you know, we had, we had a really good team. And, uh, you know, but those guys, you know, that, you're talking about NHLers with dripping with talent. And uh, we just had a great mix. We had a great mix. And, you know, right away when those guys got on campus, they were impactful players. How much, how much did Aganis and all the facilities there? Cause it was, I remember it was very new. Everyone was talking about North Dakota's rank as being the jewel of, of college hockey facilities. And then all of a sudden Aganis comes along. How much did that help you guys? Big time. I mean, and obviously you build an arena like that. You become a much better recruiter when you walk a kid into Aganis arena. So that was, that was a, uh, that was a big step in the, in the right direction for BU hockey. I was uh, I was there at the Frozen Four in 09 in, in DC. I remember so was Vermont and Kevin Snedden. So that you know yeah. that was it. That was an interesting tie-in. Um, as you got down, I mean that was a, that was a heck of a game you guys played against Miami, and you're down, and it's Amazing. it's very rare for for things to happen the way they did. But just if you could take us through your memory of what it was like on the uh, you know behind the bench with that group of student athletes and how you guys were able to to come back and and ultimately not only tie that game being two down, but then then win it in overtime on Colby Cohen's goal. Yeah, I just remember you know when they scored to make it three to one with four oh six to go. Uh, there was a little bit of disbelief on the bench, but not, we didn't quit believing. And, you know, Jack made the decision and with 3.36 to go to pull uh, Milan, which we all agreed with. I mean, it was something that, you know, we had talked about a lot during the year. I think we were a little bit more aggressive than most teams in pulling their goalie earlier back then. I really think you look now how early people pull the goalie. I really think that we kind of turn the tables in the way people think because it was a huge, you go back and listen to that game. 
I mean, people were stunned. We pulled a goalie that early and, uh, you know, it was, it really changed the way the game. Cause I thought Miami did a hell of a job. Like they, they, we did, they made life hard on us. We didn't have a lot of, lot going on. Uh, we were pretty much on life support at that time. And, uh, you know, Jack makes a decision to pull the goalie with 336 and, you know, we, the whole tide came, the whole tide of the game changed. We didn't score till 59 seconds would go to make it three to two. So we didn't score right away. And then we get the, the tire with 17 seconds to go on an unbelievable play by Chris Higgins, who gets the puck out to Gilroy. Uh, and then Gilroy makes an unbelievable play to Benino. Yeah. Benino was very clutch back then for your teams. Uh, you know, I, I watch him now, uh, Nick, and he's a different player than he was with you. Uh, I, what would you say his evolution was in terms of being able to play without the puck at the next levels? What people don't, yeah, we, what people don't realize about Nick Benino is he his hockey sense and hockey smarts are to me as good of, as good as I've ever coached. I mean, this guy is an incredible athlete too. I mean, I remember everyone talking about skating, skating, and I, you know, I never it never worried me. It, he plays so fast. He's got such a fast brain. It compensated maybe for his lack of foot speed. And uh, that's why he's been able to have the career he's had at the NHL level. That's why he was such a great player in college. And, uh, you know, he's an incredible guy, too. He's a guy you want on your team. And I'm not surprised he's had the career he's had at the NHL level. What, what led you to get all of a sudden you guys win the national championship? Hell of a celebration, by the way, I heard. But uh, <laughs> that's a whole other story. Um, uh, you know, what led you to, to leave BU? Obviously, Jack was – was wasn't going anywhere. He was still coaching. Right. What right. led you to Cleveland in the AHL? It's it's not often you see a college associate coach go to be an AHL head coach. Well, we had had four Colorado draft picks on our team, and obviously player development was just starting to become pretty significant in every organization. And Craig Billington was a player development lead lead to player development guy for for Colorado. So I was dealing with Craig quite a bit. And, uh, you know, we win the national championship. Jack's not going anywhere. I'm 46 years old. And I just thought to myself, you know, how much better can it get? You know, we, we just won a national title. We have one of the greatest seasons in the history of BU hockey. You win a game, the national title, the way it unfolded. And I just thought to myself, you know, if I'm going to really make it, uh, I've got to challenge myself. And it wasn't an easy decision because, as you guys know, I mean, you know, those jobs at BU and BC and Michigan and Michigan State are great jobs, and you can get pretty comfortable there. And I just, you know, for me, I just wanted another challenge, and I wanted to kind of broaden my base in the hockey world. And I bet on myself, I actually took a big pay cut leaving BU to take the job in Lake Erie in Cleveland to become a head coach in the American League. And I thought to myself, if I go there and do a good job, I'm going to open up a lot of opportunities for myself. And I just thought for my for my career, it was the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, obviously being in college hockey for as long as I had, I thought that was going to be an opportunity for me to open up doors at the pro level. Right. And so on that note, you go from from being a, a, around college student athletes, winning a championship, and now all of a sudden you have to go into coaching pros. Yeah, I was lucky. I'd coached in the world championships uh, with Mike Sullivan in 2006. So I had a taste of coaching pros before, but that was obviously a small, you know, sample of it. But the thing I realized quickly at the uh, American league level is a lot of those guys are the same age as college players. So, um, you know, it's hockey. I'm not, 
you know, I've been very fortunate to coach at all different levels. And at the end of the day, a lot of the things I was coaching in Ann Arbor, the issues there were the same issues I had with the Rangers. I mean, they just don't happen as often. And, you know, your job as a coach is to manage the people that you're coaching. It's not just the X's and O's and it's managing people. And you've got to have the ability to adapt your style and your approach when you're coaching 30 year olds, as opposed to 17 year olds or 22 year olds. And, you know, at the NHL level or the pro level, even in the American league, you do have a very diverse roster makeup, whether you got the young 20 year old uh, in the American league or the, you know, KG 32 year old there, who's uh, there to help you with the leadership standpoint and a veteran presence. So, you know, it really gives you an opportunity to kind of manage different ages and different people in their careers. And, you know, I was, like I said, I was fortunate to have some experience with that, but you know, you learn that pretty quickly, but it, the, everybody says that. And, you know, the, you know, the transition from college hockey to pro hockey is just managing the people a little bit differently. It's not, it's not so much the X's and O's in the hockey. Yeah. There, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And, you know, you did your three years there. Uh, Craig Billington's an awesome guy. And obviously you made your mark there. Remember you, you went to, and you did a year of assistant coaching up in Colorado. Right. Yeah, that was one year, uh, you know, it was during the lockout year, which was unfortunate. I'd been the three years in uh, in Lake Erie, loved my time there. Uh, Joe Sacco was a head coach in Colorado at the time. And obviously Joe and I go way back to our BU days and, uh, you know, they needed an assistant and it was obviously an opportunity to get back, get behind an NHL bench and it was a great opportunity. And then that led you back to BU. Uh, the job opened up. Uh, had you interviewed at any other colleges over the last, you know, since you had left college hockey? I, you know, I was just kind of sitting there waiting to see what was next. I wasn't uh, tied to the NHL or tied to college. I was, again, doing the best job I could in Colorado and, you know, whatever happened, happened. It was, uh, there really was no, I, I was very fortunate to have experience in the collegiate level and obviously being a, th- you know, head coaching the American League for three years and now being behind an NHL bench as an assistant, I was uh, probably opening up some doors to be an NHL coach. So I wasn't tied to either, either route. Oh, that's interesting because, I mean, obviously it's hard to turn down the BU job when it, when it became opened. And I, I think it really obviously solidified your brand as a, as a head coach going there and the success that you guys had. Who was on your staff and who were some of the key recruits early on that helped turn the tide for you into a, into a championship contender. Yeah. So buddy powers and uh, Steve Greeley did a really good job. My first year, you know, the, you know, they had already had Eichel in their fold and that was our main job was to keep Jack Eichel (laughs) as a BU recruit. And uh, you know, but the first guy we got that I thought really put us on the map and got us off on the right foot was when we got Clayton Keller. I remember uh, when I took the job, I didn't really have a lot of knowledge of who the recruits were, the hot recruits were. And I remember Steve really saying to me, there's a kid out of St. Louis who's going to the national program. You know, he's visiting this school and that school. We're going to try to get involved with him. And I remember initially there was a little bit of reluctance from, from Clayton Keller to come visit BU. He already had his schools picked, the five schools he was going to visit. Uh, and he was visiting BC. And we, you know, Steve did a great job in saying, listen, if you're going to go to BC, you might as well come look at BU. We're right down the road. What's it going to hurt? And, you know, it almost didn't happen. And, you know, Steve, Steve did a good job and 
convincing him it'd be worth it to take a trip down Com Ave to visit BU. And we sat there for four hours with him, uh, myself and Steve and Buddy and, and the mother and father and Clayton. And you just felt that you felt the connection. You just felt really good about the way it went. When he walked out, I actually looked at Buddy and Steve. I said, I think we got a shot at this kid. And two weeks later, he committed to BU. And uh, so now we got Eichel and Keller, and that really kind of snowballed uh, the recruiting process. We got Charlie McAvoy a couple week, couple months later. And uh, yeah. after that, That's it awesome. really it really moved forward. New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise podcast will return after this message. Do you want to skate fast? For 50 years, Laura Stam instructors have taught youth players to pros how to skate correctly, powerfully, and fast. Players who attend Laura Stam power skating programs learn how to skate fast by learning how to execute every maneuver in hockey. They become powerful, stable, efficient, and explosively fast skaters. If you can't wait for a clinic, join our subscription skills video service and we'll show you the skills taught at our clinics in an easy-to-use video format with training plans to guide your training. Register or subscribe now at laurastam.com. That's L-A-U-R-A-S-T-A-M-M dot com. Catch the Sacred Heart University Pioneers on the ice this season. The Pioneers Division I men and women's hockey programs will not disappoint. Season ticket packages and individual tickets are on sale now at sacredheartpioneers.com. And opening in 2023, Sacred Heart University's Martiri Family Arena, a brand new 122,000 square foot premier skating facility in Fairfield, Connecticut. Learn more at sacredheartpioneers.com. Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA-approved courses to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self-paced, and available 24-7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today. Develop your game with Lovell Hockey this summer. Whether you're a youth player or pro, Lovell Hockey has summer clinics, leagues, and college combines that are right for you. Go to LovellHockey.com today to sign up for July and August programs. Availability is limited, so register before they sell out. Getting back to like team building, right? And I, I want to go back to your your first media presser after you unveiled the Olympic team, and you had a comment that I love and I've been I've been actually been using it and I've been attributing it to you um, <laughs> but it's about he said when you're forming a band you don't go out and, and get five lead singers you right. have to you know you have to build the band and I know I know Lou Lamorello in the past has talked about you know building a hockey team is like the orchestra you have to have the different pieces you and so as you as you looked back on some of the teams you've built you know what do people need to know about the the aspects the things that you look at when you are building a team the critical attributes that you want to have in terms of players that em- embrace your values your culture and what you want to do on the ice and off the ice as well 
Yeah. Listen, I remember back in uh, when, when I an assistant at BU, and I think it's a great uh, segue into this story. I remember early on in my first few years at BU, we were close, but we were just missing a, a little bit of an ingredient to our team. And Eric Greiber was playing in Green Bay. He's from, he's from Saskatchewan, a hard-nosed right-shot defenseman. And, uh, you know, we could have got more skilled players probably uh, than Eric Greiber, but I thought he was exactly what we needed. And, you know, I remember, you know, when we won it in 09, he was a big piece of the puzzle uh, in us winning it. Uh, he was a huge impact in our program. Uh, but to me, when you're putting a team together, you know, you need talent. Let's not fool each other here. I mean, you better have talent. Talent always wins out, but you got to have the right type of talent. And it's got to be putting a team together. And there are certain players that, you know, maybe you can take on a team at, the, at, at a particular time, but you're not going to take them when you're starting the process of building a team. And, you know, to me, it's, you know, I call it soft skill. And I know it's a term that people are using. Like you can add soft skill to your team if you have built your team. If you're almost done building your team, I think it's hard to start building a team with soft skill. And, you know, that's kind of, you know, a little microcosm of my approach and how you build a team. You've got to have, you know, it's a fast game played in a small area, but you need talent. You can't overlook talent. Someone's got to put, put, put the puck in the net. So I think when you're constructing a team, maybe you create that, you, you, to me, you create that hard culture first, and then you add the, the, the sprinkle in and, and add that skill level uh, for the final piece of it. But, you know, you just, you're not just getting 12 high-end talented players uh, and throwing them together, but you better have enough of them. Right. And so when you're talking to players and you're going through the recruiting process, do you, do you put a lot of stock then in, in, in identifying those kids who know what they are? And, and you, you talk to them, they understand their identity and they know what they're going to bring to your team and they're ready to embrace it. Is that an, a critical aspect to, to the decisions you make, you know, when you're when you're deciding whether to offer a guy or, or maybe in, in the case of, you know, pro hockey, you're drafting, you know, drafting a guy or when you have your input with, the, with those types? Yeah, without question. I mean, part of being really good at your role is accepting your role and and listen, I want people to score every every time they get on the ice. There's not, but there's different ways to approach your game. You know, some everybody's got to play to their strengths. Accepting your role on a particular team is pivotal, and especially when you're putting together teams at the international level, because usually when you're getting players, everybody's a power play guy. Everybody's been a high-end player. So when you get all these best players together, you're going to ask some people to do things that they're probably not accustomed to doing. And that's that was a big piece of our conversations when the NHL players were still going to the Olympics, who was going to accept a role that they're pre, you know, they, they haven't been asked to accept, but I think that translates to every team that you're picking, who's going to be willing to accept the role that they're going to be asked to do on that particular team. Well, you see, you see it at a lot of different levels where um, the smart players are the ones who figure it out at the upper levels that, that the team, they've got to fit themselves into the team, not the other way around. And, right. you know, uh, that's why I look at like a guy like Benino is great to learn from uh, uh, because when he went, when he turned to pro hockey, he realized he had to do other things. He, he had to kill penalties. He had to uh, be more of a checker and, and adjust and everything. And I, I think that gets back to Lou Lamarillo's orchestra analogy of needing violinists and drummers and, 
and flutists and everyone else to kind of blend and play to play the music together. Like you've got to find your role on a team, but as a coach, I mean, do you find you have to need to communicate kids so that they understand their roles? Well, I think without question, that's a big responsibility uh, of this, this generation and any generation really. I mean, I think the clarity of, of what you expect from your players as a coach is pivotal and there can't be any gray area. There's got to be an understanding of what the role is, what the expectations are. And I think you owe the player an explanation of why, to some certain degree, why you're doing what you're doing. And they may not like it, but at least they can't say they didn't know. And the, you know, the hardest part about coaching and our sport in general, it's probably the most subjective sport there is. I mean, all three of us could go watch a game and, you know, we could sit around after the game and talk about the best players and we could have three different players be the best players. <laughs> you know, we could come out of that game thinking three guys were the best player in the game. So but it's, it's your job as a coach to make the players understand why you're doing what you're doing and them accepting it. Well, what, one of the things I've appreciated about you over the years, and I've had clients of mine who have played for you, is you, one, you have conviction. Uh, you believe in what you're doing no matter what. And two, you communicate very clearly to what, what you want from people. And I think that that's, to me, that the biggest weakness we have in – in hockey in general, it's gotten better is lack of communication and not, right. you know, people not understanding what their role is and then performing it. Um, do you find the athletes today have changed a lot with the social media and how, how do you, how do you find that's changed things since when you started coaching? Well, the biggest difference, it's, it's harder today than ever before to be an athlete because when we were growing up, a game would end and your coach would be the only the only evaluation that you were concerned with. And then you'd obviously hear something from your parents. And I don't know how much you pay attention to your parents about, I didn't pay much attention to my parents and what they thought about how I played because neither one of them played hockey and knew much about the sport. Well, today it, it's, it's very difficult because these, these players have so many people that are in their ear about how they played, how they think they should play, how the coach is using them. I mean, it's, it's a battle. It's a, and, and I'll, I'll never forget this, you know, when Charlie McAvoy was a freshman, it was his draft year at BU. And we had play, we went up to Union, we played Union, game ends, we're leaving the rink, and, you know, the players have to go through the lobby to get to the bus. And Charlie McAvoy's sitting there. There had to be 100 people in the lobby. And he's got his bag over his shoulder, and 12 people are standing around him telling him what they thought of the game and how he played and da-da-da-da-da. And the next day we get back, and I met with Charlie. I said, the thing you're going to have to manage is lobby talk. And he looked at me like I was crazy. I was, what are you talking about? I said, that game ended last night and I'm walking through the lobby and you're talking to 15 people about how the game went and how you played and what they thought. Da, 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 da. I go, they're, I'm not being disrespectful. Their opinion means nothing, Charlie. I go, they don't know what you and I have been talking about for the last three weeks. The pros teams that are in the stands, they don't know what they're looking for. I said, you've got to channel your your energy and your attention to the people that are going to be the most influential in your career. And I'm not saying that from an ego standpoint. I'd be telling you this if Joe Smith was your coach. And he started laughing. He goes, we need to have this talk every two weeks. I okay. said, no lobby talk. Don't listen to lobby talk. It, it's, also, it's also blocking out the noise. And yes. you know, unfortunately, our lobby is much bigger now with social media because they can yes. go to Twitter and read everything or Instagram. Exactly. Exactly. You know, uh, I, like I always say, just stop the noise, just yep. lock it and out. I, you know, when he and I had that conversation, we included all of that. Like you've yeah. just got to, 
Yeah. You got like, you know, I'm not saying don't be on it. You know, it's unrealistic to ask a 17 year old not to be on Twitter or, or, or Instagram, but try to block out what people are saying about you. You know, if you want to focus on other things, be go right ahead, but don't allow it to influence the way you approach the game or the way you play. So um, we talked about the ecstasy of winning national championship with BU at special group. Now I was in, in uh, TD garden for the frozen four. And I was reminded of an unbelievable uh, frozen four 2015, but uh, I've got, oh, to I don't, I don't remember. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I've got to ask you, I can't, I, I, I have to say yeah, what, when, you know, looking, looking back on that, on that, you know, and again, um, you come so close and, and it doesn't happen, but what, what were some of the, the, the memories you, you took and, and maybe some of the lessons you learned as a, as a coach, uh, from so so difficult a loss. Well, it was just an incredible group of guys. I mean, right from the get go, you know, we, my first year at BU was a very difficult one. We won ten games, but it was a special group. And you know, that year I thought really set us up because we knew we had you know Eichel was coming in the following year. We loved the freshman class we had coming in. I thought some of the returning players that were battling injuries the year before were going to have better years. As crazy as it sounded. For a team that won 10 games a year before, there was a lot of optimism going into that season. And, you know, right from the get-go, we were good. Right from the get-go, there was a great mix of veteran leadership uh, with the incoming freshmen. We had four freshmen deep playing every game. And, you know, we never thought we were going to lose. And it goes back to that swagger comment that I made earlier. We, you know, we didn't have arrogance. We had swagger. We knew if we went into a game, did A, B, or C, that we were going to win the game. And we felt that way all the way through the tournament. And, you know, unfortunately uh, in that game, I mean, you know, it happened, you know, the flukiest, craziest of plays happened. Uh, and I'll never forget the look on our players' faces after that happened. I've never been in a building that felt so eerie after that goal went in. Um you know, and it just, uh, it just wasn't goalie, hot be. goalie. There was a lot of factors. I thought, I mean, what but. people forget, we set an NCAA record for most shots in a uh, frozen four final. We had 52 shots that night and um, you know, but there was, you know, it's just, you know, there's a lot that went on that, uh, that, you know, we just, I mean, Matt O'Connor was a big reason why we got there. Uh, he probably wasn't at his best, going into the tournament, you know, a couple of goals, even leading into the national championship game. I'm sure he'd like to have back. And it just, uh, you know, it just, it happened. And that's, uh, that's unfortunate part. That's life. That's what happens in the one and dones. So you, you, uh, you take the job at BU and I think everyone's looking at you like, okay, BU is your dream job. You're going to be there the rest of your career. Right. Yeah. Uh, then all of a sudden the Rangers job opens up. And I knew you were a little still fascinated with the pro game. You had coached in the AHL. What led you to the Rangers besides a great contract? <laughs> well, there were a bunch of things. Uh, you know, first, I just didn't, you know, I, I thought I was going to be a BU forever for sure. And, yeah. uh, you know, it just, you know, I was 53 at the time and, you know, they came at, you know, I talked with them. I thought I said no originally and, you know, I thought about it. My now wife was from there. Her kids are there. And it's the New York Rangers. I mean, it's not, you know, you know, it's the New York bleeping Rangers. And uh, I don't know if I would have left for any other organization or any other situation. 
And, I mean, uh, you, you had a relationship too with, uh, and that's the thing I was just going to touch on. My relationship with Chris and Jeff was long and, and deep and, you know, I had connection with some of the players there and, uh, you know, I just thought it's either now or never. And, uh, you know, I don't regret it at all. I know I sit here today as an unemployed NHL coach, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a job, it's a job you couldn't turn down. Uh, right. It's on Broadway. Uh, right. what was, how much distraction was there for the players you felt playing in that big stage there? And how, how did you help them manage that? And it is a big stage, that's for sure. But, you know, we were lucky. We had a lot of guys that had been there for a while. And, you know, we had a lot of young players that, you know, I thought the personalities could handle it. I didn't think they, they were going to get overwhelmed by the distractions in New York. Uh, you know, I think they were, challenged by making big jumps from whether it be major junior hockey or, or, you know, European hockey to play in the national hockey league. But I thought uh, our group did a pretty good job of managing the situation being in New York. And, uh, you know, it was obviously, it was clear to me what was going to happen in the first, my first two to three years there. I thought we did a good job managing it and not hitting rock bottom during a rebuild. And, uh, you know, it just, uh, like I said, you know, COVID, I don't know if you guys remember, but when COVID hit on March 11th, back in, uh, 2020, you were in Colorado, we were in Colorado from January one on, I think we had the second most wins in the NHL. Crides broke his foot when we were in Philly, we were, we had just set a franchise record for most consecutive road wins. I think we're nine and I'll never forget it. We we're on a plane flying from Montreal to Philly and, uh, we're playing back to back. And we're up one nothing. Crides breaks his foot. We lose that game. Crides was out, but was probably going to come back. And we just, you know, we blew out Dallas. We're playing back-to-back again. We went to Dallas, beat Dallas 5-1, got into Colorado, lost in overtime to Colorado, and uh, then the you know, pandemic hit. But we were one point out of a playoff spot, and we were going to make the playoffs. I mean, that team, we, we, we were on a roll, and we had that good feeling that a, that a successful team has. And uh, it was unfortunate the way that, you know, the season had to end and then the bubble didn't go well. We had a, you know, you know, D'Angelo shouldn't have been playing. He played, he had a pulled hamstring. He was a shadow of himself. Shesterkin was hurt. We lost Jesper fast in the very first shift. We didn't have a lot of depth anyway, because we were in salary cap jail. Um, so, you know, but we, we, you know, and even last year we were pretty competitive all the way to the end. So um, I thought the organization did a good job in uh, being competitive during a time where, uh, you know, we were in cap, tough cap situation. My last year there, we had $18 million of cap, dead cap money. And, you know, with six games to go, we were, you know, still battling for playoff spots. So you know, I thought the older players did a really good job with the younger players and keeping them focused and uh, letting them understand what it was going to take to be an NHL player, but more importantly, an NHL player in New York. Chris Kreider, uh, speaking of, uh, just hit an important milestone, only the fourth New York Ranger player in franchise history to score 50. How does that feel watching that? I mean, you know, you, you coached him. He was one of your guys. BC yeah. guy, I would point out, but in, in fairness to him, he did grow up being a BU kid, and he just ended up at BC. So. He almost ended up at BU. Yeah. He almost yeah. ended up <laughs> So I'd feel, a lot, I'd feel a lot better if I was still coaching him, but, you know, Chris and I, as Matt knows, I mean, uh, I think I was the first guy to offer him a full scholarship back in the, when he was at uh, in prep school. And But, you know, he's a, he's a special player and he's a great person and I loved coaching him. And, you know, I'm not surprised he's a 50 goal scorer. I mean, he, you know, 
It's just, uh, it's been there his whole career. And I just think he feels, you know, with his contract and where he is with that organization and, you know, I just think it all came together for him this year. And, uh, you know, he's a guy that, you know, he's a very impactful player on and off the ice. And I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly happy for him. The one, the one thing that's impressed me about Chris having known him a long time is that he is all about mastering his craft. Like he's dedicated to getting better every day. Did you notice that, uh, him doing that extra work, uh, whether it's tipping pucks or shooting and doing the little things? Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, he's, Talk about a great example for young players. Uh, he is the epitome of that. He's exactly what you want in your organization to lead the young players in the right direction. But, you know, that's just a, you know, that's a, that's a spinoff of him continuing to improve his game and putting himself in a position to be the best player he could possibly be. And, you know, that's who he is. That's who he's been his whole life. And, uh, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm really happy for him. It's, 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 you know, it's as fun. It's fun to watch, to watch a guy like that uh, maximize his potential. You coached Norris Trophy winner too, and just talk about how Adam Fox's progression has been, uh, just in terms of what he was when you first started working with him, and and how far he came. Yeah, well, I you know I'm fortunate that I knew him before he got to New York, and uh, you know what people don't realize about Adam Fox is how hockey tough he is. I mean, everybody sees the deception and the incredible hockey IQ and the passes he makes, but this guy defends and he's tough. I mean, this guy is hockey tough and he's a special player. He's a special player. He's another guy too, that you want in your locker room. There's a humility to him that I think rubs off on everybody. And, uh, you know, he's got, he's, that's not the only Norris trophy he's going to win. Well, the interesting thing with Foxy, Teddy Donato used to say it about Harvard is that uh, everyone who asked him, can he defend? Can he defend? I remember Teddy said he'll defend when he wants to. You know, <laughs> you know, he's selective in terms of his defending. Um, one thing I noticed right away when he turned pro, he had no choice but to defend. Right. And, uh, but I, I think part of his reason why he won the Norris Trophy was his two-way play. I think you'd agree with that, right? Well, and again, it was a year that we didn't have a lot of depth on the blue line. And I remember my end of the year meeting with him last year and, you know, I thought we were going to be in a better position to put him in a better position to be productive offensively. But ironically, I think because we had to use him in more defensive zone faceoffs than we wanted to, we needed to use him in more defensive situations than we wanted to. I think it kind of let the world know that he can defend. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the year, I said to him, I said, you know, next year we're going to be able to put you in a better position offensively and use you in more, you know, use you on offensive zone faceoffs more, you know, not waste, a lot of your energy in the D side of the play. But ironically, I think because we would, we needed to use him in those situations and let the world know that he can defend. This yeah. is a two-way player. Yeah. And I think it's one of the reasons because people watched the way he defended and how tough he was. I think it helped him win the Norris trophy. Yeah. Another local guy you coached that, you know, he's since, you know, he left the Rangers was, was taken by Seattle in the expansion draft and is now in Toronto to help them. But Colin Blackwell, I mean, it just seemed like you really noticed last year was the first time I really noticed that he had really established himself as a, as a guy that could really contribute. And he's a, he was a lower line guy. And, you know, and the fans typically coach, they don't want to, they don't want to consider the lower line guys, but, but just, he's an unbelievable hockey player in his own right. And he had to be to play at this level. Um, what were your thoughts on, on, on Colin Blackwell and, and what he's going to do for Toronto in the, in the stretch run and in, in the playoffs? 
Yeah, what I loved about him was the honesty in his game. I mean, there's never a, a shortcut. There's never a, a moment where there's not effort, mental or physical effort. And he's got skill to complement it. So, you know, I mean, he's a guy that uh, is going to help a team like Toronto. He can. He's a guy that you can put up on your top two lines to complement some highly skilled players like he did with Strom and Panarin. But he's also a guy that can play on your third or fourth line and do the things those guys need to do. So, you know, he's a multidimensional player. And uh, I know he had some injury issues at Harvard, which were unfortunate for him. He didn't have the career that he could have had if he was healthy at Harvard. But I'm really happy for him that he's put himself in this position at the NHL level. So, so Quinny, we've gone through your your whole career. Uh, again, a very varied background at different levels. We have to ask you, what does the future hold for you? Um, at the time of this taping, obviously the BU job's open. Uh, what are your plans going forward? Yeah, I, you know, I love the NHL game. I've, uh, you know, I learned an awful lot in my time in New York, especially my last year there, and that's where I want to be. I want to, uh, I want to take what I learned over my three years at, in New York and 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 apply it, hopefully, in my next job in the National Hockey League. So, you know, it's a very volatile profession. Unfortunately, guys are going to lose jobs here in the next month. Um, you know, my next challenge is to coach the World Championship team, which I'm looking forward to. But, uh, you know, I, I, I want another crack at the National Hockey League. Well, that's, that's pretty upfront and definitive. And, and, and look, wh- whoever is going to be uh, behind the bench at BU, you know, they've got, a, they've got a great foundation to look at. But for you, I mean, just looking at, at some of the lessons that you took from being in New York and, 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 and coaching the Rangers and the players you had, just, just if you could sum up for us and, and, and just wrap it up for us, just what are, what are the things couple of things that you take are taking with you that you know are going to translate into your next job and are going to help you to be successful when you get that next opportunity? Well, first and foremost, just be true to yourself. I mean, to me as a coach, you've got to be, as Maddie alluded to, I've always been strong on my convictions and, you know, I'm very respectful of other people's opinions because it's a very subjective game. And, but just because I don't agree with someone doesn't mean that I respectfully don't disagree with them. Right. So but I've got to coach the team the way I want to coach. It's put me in this position that I'm in. Um, you know, there's an approach that I've had my whole life that I want to continue to use and, and make better as I get my next opportunity. Uh, everyone asks me the difference between coaching college hockey and the NHL. And the number one challenge is managing above you. And, uh, you know, we had that going for a while in New York. There was great connection between ownership, management and, and coaching. Uh, you know, last year was a challenging year for a variety of reasons. Um, but you know, to me, you know, if I got a little bit away from being who I've been my whole life as a coach and, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to getting that opportunity to get back behind the bench and, you know, being who I've been my whole career, but just being a little bit better in the areas that have put me in this position that I'm in. Well, that's, uh, Great. Couldn't have said it better. Uh, again, thank you so much for your time today uh, joining us. It's, we've covered a lot of ground. I want to thank, as always, our producer, Steve Safran, man man behind the curtain, uh, behind the scenes, making everything happen. Uh, it's been an honor uh, to talk to you, Coach Quinn, and, and, and uh, you know, we wish you the best and good luck at the, at the World uh, Championship. Again, it, it, it's, it's another opportunity to, uh, to represent the country, and uh, I know a lot of people will be behind you guys. So, uh, on behalf of uh, Matt Cater, myself, uh, this is the uh, Rinkwise podcast. Uh, thank you again for being on. And uh, until next time, 
We'll see you at the rink. Thanks for listening to New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. Follow us on Twitter at NE Hockey Journal, on Instagram and Facebook at New England Hockey Journal, and subscribe to New England Hockey Journal online at hockeyjournal.com. New England Hockey Journal's Rinkwise is a Siemens Media Podcast.